Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing reserved procedures and the Asade judgment. Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bistec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Marta. Yes. <laughs> good to see you again. How have you Likewise. been? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, looking forward to our chat today, a bit about social perspectives in public procurement. Is that fair to describe it in such a way, I guess, right? Yeah, I think we're really uh, going for very much of a socially responsible public procurement context today where we're focusing on two of the explicitly legislated uh, reserve procedures. So for those of you that have pieces of paper ready whilst you're listening, you're not on a bike, you're not in a car, grab the, the directive and go for Article 20 and 77 in the Directive 2014-24. Because we're looking at the the reserve procedures for sheltered workshops and the reserve procedure for uh, social enterprises. So that's our main for today. And then we will jump to our dessert, which will be? Uh, Societal positions as an academic and questions of independence. Very good. So that's um, that's what we're looking at in terms of uh, in terms of food. Let's see. Last time you made very interesting comments about which part was more fun. Let's see if we can make this one more fun <laughs> in the beginning, right? Undoubtedly. Uh, let's, um, let's talk a bit about context. So um, Socially the, we have these procedures. Public procurement. I think that's, yeah. the, that, that's a good place to start. And I think the reason why I would want us to start there because it's also contextual to uh, where you are in the world. And what I mean by that is that we are quite bad or we've been quite bad in regulating social dimensions of public procurement in Europe. And um, the environmental part has been dominant for some time right now. And also because the social part very often in the European context gets this label of ultimately aiming for preferential treatment, right? Because local workforce, um, local companies. But if you look a little bit outside and if you look particularly, you know, South Africa has been doing some fantastic things. If you look on Australia, America, Canada, um, all those countries that uh, due to historical and cultural contexts have um, disadvantaged uh, members of a society, particularly um, in Australia or Canada, uh, connected with the indigenous communities, the notion of providing a type of reverse discrimination, somehow providing these preferential treatments to various uh, companies that would be indigenous community owned and so on, that's that has been quite elaborative for many years and lots has been going on there. But in Europe, we sort of dipped into it a little bit, but there is a lot of fear, risk associated with that, that particularly the legislators uh, still are unsure how to tackle that, to not ruin the internal market in a sense, not to, you know, open the Pandora box. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think it, I think that makes a lot of sense because often when you look at this like preferential legislation that we see a lot abroad, um, 
that would favor a certain group over the other in society, mm. right? And for good reason, like you say, uh, because of history or current socioeconomic uh, positioning of these groups in society. Uh, but in Europe, because we have an integration-driven agenda, particularly under this directive, um, often it's then seen as a risk to favor your own entities. Um, and that, yeah, okay, you might be saying that it's for a social purpose, but yeah, aren't you really just trying to uh, uh, keep the doors closed to entities wanting to bid from abroad? Yeah. So because of that integration, so that's why in a way it's already interesting that, you know, for social um, entities, those sheltered workshops and social enterprises, we do have a reserved procedure because it kind of directly goes against the position of the directives, which focuses predominantly on evaluating the bid, right? And not the bidder itself. Mm. And and that's often very nationality driven, because if we start focusing on the bidder, you know, we might get those national preferences back. And that's what we don't want, or at least this is the national, the, the European legislator speaking. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I think this is also the relevance of those provisions and this approaches, as you mentioned, this reserved procedures. It's also seen really as the predominant tool to include uh, social dimension in public procurement um, in the EU. And what I mean by that is if you look at the buying social um, initiatives and the guidelines that have been issued, and you look on, um, there is one that sort of looks on the practices across member states and identifies which type of solutions have been applied. And the reserved procedures just being one of them. There's also like, did you consider somehow the social dimension in the award procedure or what you were describing your tech specs or in the contract performance? So they kind of created a catalog and then surveyed uh, across all the member states which type of procedures have been used, or sorry, which type of tools to push the social agenda have been used most. The reserved contacts, uh, undoubtedly, the reserved procedures here are being the predominant one. It somehow seems to be extremely difficult to wave in, weave in, sorry, this type of social consideration in any other way in the in the uh, competitive uh, procedure. Then the next after those would be the contract performance condition that somehow have these requirements that we remember from you know, the police and Bentius case, um, when you have this sort of requirement of... Uh, employing at least certain amount from long-term unemployed, and that would be the contract performance uh, condition, right? So the reserve contract. Yeah, so contracts, that's I think the. Yeah. Um, sorry. No, no, I'm just it, up to you because it's exactly like this is what we had from Code of Justice, and on these reserved procedures is the newer development uh, that 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 we have some cases, right? So so that's what we would do a little bit more today. Yeah, for sure. And also just to link in what, we, what you were saying, if you reflect on the Dutch context, that's very much reserved procedures through sheltered workshops mm. um, for mostly the municipalities. And then we have these classic examples of, of bike repair shops uh, that are run by, uh, as what we, what we say is people with a distance to the labor market, including mm -hmm. all types of reasons. Okay. Whether that be... That's a nice way of, uh, of wording it. I like it. Yes, because it's not, I think I also I quite like it because it doesn't stigmatize those people for what they what they what might limit them, but actually just mm. describes that they're at a distance. So, um, and those 
contractual conditions. That's this golden 5% rule that we apply in the Netherlands, nearly stock standard to all contracts. That has its issues as well, because we often that 5% is not well thought out, but 5% of the value then would need to go towards hiring long-term unemployed and all these metrics set up of like you get more points for these type of um, long-term unemployed rather than, you know, people with a shorter distance to the to the labor market. Um, so you see a variety of it. and But then what I find interesting before we start looking at these specific criteria, in the Netherlands, we don't actually use this reserve procedure for social enterprises at all. So the Article 77 is not used, or at mm. least uh, to my knowledge, it isn't. So what I would be interested also to hear from our listeners is if you have really good examples of this being used um, in your, if this shocks you perhaps, uh, and you think, well, we use it all the time, I would leave it in the comments because I'd love to hear more about that because, and we'll come to the criteria in a bit, uh, um, but I find those so that one is so strict that it's almost impossible to to apply. Yeah, and I think that uh, the very last comment that uh, in in regards, you know, to scoping that I would want to make is um, a bit related also to this sort of gender balance procurement that is also right now one of uh, one of the agendas and and discussion. Uh, on one of the events this year, and giving here a shout out to Professor Anna Maria Lakima, um, she made a very interesting statement that somehow stayed with me. Um, when we were discussing, you know, this various promotion of, if that is various groups of type of enterprises and so on, uh, because it's equally applicable also if you really think SMEs, so you don't need to think, you know, women-owned businesses or you don't need to think about social enterprises and so on, but any of the other somehow. Um, and what Anna Maria mentioned, which I thought it was really, really brilliant sort of nugget of thought, it's this thing that, well, we assume that currently the system is objective and, you know, currently the system is right. So by giving any type of preferential preferential treatment, you kind of give someone something for nothing. But this is wrong in the assumption because the system currently is not equally accessible to everyone. The system is very much designed in a way that it works for big, large companies. So this is, I think, also this notion between broadly outside of procurement, the language that is very often used, the difference between equality and equity. And the equity here being really, I think, crucial. So just to sort of, you know, sideline for this discussion that I think brings us very much to well, what markets we creating? What societies we creating? Um, and 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 again, this sort of social dimension of public procurement. That I guess in our podcast, where we talk often about sustainable public procurement, maybe we did not so specifically tackle this social dimension before. And as Willem mentioned, we would want to focus on shelter workshops and social enterprises. So let's start with the shelter workshop. If we look at Article. 20 within the directive, the 2014-24, the reserved contracts ultimately allow us to do what, Willem? Um, Well, so particularly when it comes to Article 20, what's interesting is the member states have the option to include this reserve procedure, so it's optional implementation. And what it means is that you can set up a procedure, it's still a procedure in both cases, in which you can limit the right to participate. 
And the article here then gives a room for sheltered workshops, but has also broadened it in the most recent revamp of this provision to economic operators whose main aim is the social and professional integration of disabled or disadvantaged persons. And basically then it, uh, as its main criterion states that, right? So that needs to be that type of entity, but also it says something about... Um, that this uh, the workforce needs to be 30 percent uh, consistent of well, it needs to consist of 30 percent of employees uh, of those workshops economic operators or programs etc so 30 percent used to be 50 so it's been it's been lowered a little bit mm. uh, to make it more accessible and that's been and welcome right i think that if i look at the commentators and sort of um, analysis and interpretation of that provision that decrease has been welcomed very yes, much. because fifty percent is a lot. Yeah, right. Because it's it's a general FTE count, um, and that makes it difficult. And thirty percent is far more viable in that uh, in that sense. Um, so this is where you see the municipalities using them as sheltered workshops to the kind of because these entities and these reserved contracts or I should say reserved procedures. Why do we have them? Because we, the assumption is is that they struggled to compete. Yeah. They're at a competitive disadvantage when it comes to their uh, to um, when it comes to just your stock standard small or medium sized enterprises, um, because they have this social agenda because they have a different outline of a workforce. The assumption is is that they struggle to compete and would then not be able to bid for for contracts. And that's I think in a, more broadly speaking, you see that with all types of semi-atypical entities on the market, whether they be social enterprises or citizens' initiatives or, uh, you know, any type of entity that is a bit different, I would say this reasoning could apply as well. Yeah. And I think that um, the interesting part is that it's not that you're kind of giving, awarding directly that contract to a company like this, which is interesting if we for a second take a sort of shoot through and maybe that's because I had the experience or maybe it's because I'm very much looking forward to going to but uh, in Australia in their approach um, <laughs> you really have the exemption right you're saying if you have a company with particular amount of indigenous community ownership it is excluded from the general um uh, processes and is excluded you can directly award it to them as long as you kind of tick that box. So up here, the European approach in this regards is that you still have the competition. It's just that you limit who can participate in it. Now, Willem, I wonder, because I don't have knowledge about that, um, do you may have some sort of indication on the Dutch market, this type of reserved procedures, is a competition ultimately present there? Do you have competition between those entities? Or ultimately you do end up with just one? I think that's the standard rule. So mm -hmm. in many, also, if I look at what happened, what, what, as far as I am aware of the practices in other member states, often, just to use the example again of a municipality, it's one sheltered workshop mm -hmm. per municipality or one or a couple and they have specific focuses. Mm -hmm. um, so whether that would be simply said a candle workshop or arts and crafts, it's a totally different than the one that I mentioned already where bikes are repaired. Yeah. So um, there is a, the, but when you get to more, I would say more sizable chunks, so social uh, management of neighborhoods, there was a big case where uh, there was a, or allegedly what they stated themselves, quite a successful one in Utrecht, mm. 
Mm-hmm. It was put open for tender and the Rotterdam one took the contract. Now, what's I, I, where I can see the, um, the frustration there is not just because, you know, you did, according to your own knowledge, you did a good job before and now you're not getting the reserved contract. It's also because these these social entities or social workshops, they're so linked to the local population, mm. right? To social communities. Um, uh, so the question then is, okay, should that really go to a Rotterdam uh, sheltered workshop when the Utrecht one was doing a fine job, right? But that's, I suppose, questioning the, the whole competitive side of things. Yeah, still. and I think this is exactly also what you're saying. If you look at it from that perspective, which I think is a very valid, you know, point because development of communities, the social angle, it, and and so on and so forth, even the development of areas, right, uh, that you sort of create for, if you have particularly um, some neighborhood, and it sort of creates uh, engagement for young uh, people that maybe either way would get into some troubles. It, it, it really has this social dimension and localism to it, but because it has that localism to it, I guess we can really see why there is so much risk aversion in a broader European context to the so, so, sort of social dimension, right? Because it really has that uh, that local sort of ingrained geographic notion. You mentioned Rotterdam and Utrecht still within the same member state, right? Now imagine if that somehow would be um, a French sort of organization or a social uh, enterprise coming in. So that kind of changes things quite a lot. Let's jump for a second and compare uh, the shelter workshop in 20 to the social enterprises in Article 77. So as you mentioned, we have these two procedures, reserved procedures. Uh, They both somehow create uh, a type of uh, unique situation. What is the difference when we apply sort of 20? What is the difference between when we apply 20 and when we would apply 77? Yeah, so 77 is in a different section. So it's in the, uh, the chapter on social and other services with a higher threshold in terms of the monetary value of the contract. So the so-called and light touch regime, right? Exactly. And um, it's also specifically limited to specific uh, CPV codes. Um, and it's stricter. So I believe I mentioned that already. It's got more criteria that says something about the type of entity that can participate in the procedure. And it's very much linked to what, uh, even though there's no standard definition of a social enterprise, but it does smell of social enterprise, Mm. if I can say it like that. So it needs to have an objective that is in pursuit of of a public service mission and uh, profits are reinvested to aid that mission. So that's, I think, a common thread through most definitions, also on the EU level or on the national level. So when I talk to social enterprise and now the, the, the Dutch body that um, aims to um, represent the needs of social enterprises in the Netherlands, they tell me that that's a general focus of social enterprises. What, where I think what's in, in a way interesting about this article is it also says something about the profits. They need to be um, redistributed or um, distributed based on participatory dis- uh, considerations. Nobody knows what, what those participatory considerations are. So you can make profit because you're an entity, right? Those profits primarily need to be reinvested towards that public service mission. But you know if you have some money left over, 
there needs to be some type of social way, or at least this is how I see it. The directive is unclear there. Uh, so you let's just say the, the the director taking all that's somewhat excluded, but what it means to have participatory considerations, perhaps the the um, third criterion can give a bit of meaning there is that the structure of management or ownership of the organization must also be based on employee ownership or participatory principles or require active participation of employees, users, or stakeholders. Now, again, this is very vague, but it seems to infer some type of more of a flat organization where employees have a um, uh, have ownership or at least have a stronger say than a very top-down type of management style. And perhaps that can also be linked to the, you know, if you distribute profits, it needs to go to all employees. And there's a question mark there because that's a bit unclear. Um, and then finally, um, you can only uh, award a contract for a maximum of three years and you cannot have been given a contract in the past three years. So that being said, knowing that it's still in a competitive environment like we just discussed, um, these criteria are very strict. Mm. Um, and I think particularly the 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 criteria that relate to the structures of management because the objectives and the, uh, the the that criterion about profit i think a lot of entities can kind of fulfill those requirements but because this article requires employee ownership or participatory principles in which the management is constructed and because you can only get get one every three years, it's not really, I think for many entities an interesting option knowing that many of them already tell me, it's so hard to work with the government anyway. So if, you know, you can only get one contract for three years, it's probably not a very uh, viable option. But and also a means of like getting the social procurement. Mm, I think that the interesting part here is also that it's one of those provisions, and we have a couple of them in the directive, that really kind of shoots so far away from what procurement is, right? Kind of about... Because it's the same, another example you can be really, if you analyzed uh, the labels, that it kind of really tells you about how the labels and standards, um, environmental standards, how they are to be developed, what type of stakeholders are to play, what is the procedure establishing certification, et cetera, et cetera. Which is, well, that is for, if that is area of law of something else to kind of have more to say about how this is to be done. Right, you can apply it here, um, but I'm not sure whether within procurement rules we are the best to design how this is to be done. Similarly, when we're talking about social enterprises, you really going into detail um, on how this to be organized, how the money is to be distributed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's 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 going quite far. Another provision that is similar to that is actually also innovation partnership, right? which is in a section on procedures, but actually when you read through it, it's not a procedure. It's actually a sort of public-private uh, enterprise because it talks about, you know, intermediate targets, organizations, and all these sort of different things that happens after you award contract. And we have a couple of them. And, and I find it quite interesting, um, but at the same time, you know, kind of easy point of criticism to, to state, yeah, I understand that there is a point of open competition and that's what we protect above and, 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 and beyond. But if we assume that there is a social need 
And on that basis, we also have the 20 and we kind of, okay, indicate the numbers. Why 77 so so extensively restrictive in, 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 in that regards? It might makes it a type of dead letter of law, you know, that, that we kind of have a provision, but that provision will never be used. And then when the provision is never used, it really raises the question of its quality and, and the sense of having it when the next round of revision comes in. Yeah, so in a way, I do also I understand where they're coming from, mm. right? When they because this was seen Article seventy seven as one of the victories of like the instrumental use or the instrumental public procurement law that we had in well that was introduced in two thousand and fourteen. I keep wanting to say new directives, but I know it's not. I don't, that I don't new think anymore. we can really say that anymore. <clears throat> no. Particularly when I say that to my students, they look at me and they kind of go, 2014? I mean, I was born, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that's yeah. definitely not the case yet. Um, but I, I do find it, because then if you take the next step, right? If you say um, you, you you would want to make a carve out, particularly for, social for, for, for these type of entities, right? Mm -hmm. Because I also understand that there's a bit of frustration there. In lots of EU policy documents, you know, social enterprises are heralded as the way forward. When you look at the some of the proposals in terms of due diligence that are coming out, it's very much focused on producers, on entities that, you know, are active on the market and the obligations that are going to rest on their shoulders to, yeah. me to meet all these important goals, whether they're social or sustainably related. Um, but then when we talk about public contracts, we say, you know, your problem participate in a procedure and unless you meet these two reserved contracts it's your problem yeah the rebuttal there is perhaps not so much um uh integration focused even though i think that's a relevant point of course because well we started with that so i think it's it would we be hard to say that it that. wasn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise we would be going against what we just said but i also think that when you start thinking about so i did a bit of work for um uh, citizens initiatives in the, in the Netherlands and I tried to come up with a guide to help them you know work with uh, public procurement law and for them and to spur their their, their access uh, to procedures is it ultimately as a lawyer you you are confronted with the question what's the difference between a startup a small medium-sized enterprise a citizens initiative a social enterprise a sheltered workshop um, and what entities do we specifically want to uh stimulate yeah not perhaps sure. more of a political mm -hmm. question um but the next step is then how do we ensure that the system is legally sound right and i think here what the legislator did in article 77 it went very strict to make sure that you know we need integration but we also see the importance of social enterprises and they can get contracts but we're going to make sure that only those entities that are really, you know, social enterprises can get the contract. So, but if you talk about definitions legally, I do think that's, um, it can get quite uh, difficult, right? So it, perhaps also a bit of empathy for, for the legislator when it comes to this. Uh, undoubtedly, but, you know, I think ultimately um, what I envision might happen is the next time that uh, we will be revising it, uh, the articles um, on social enterprise. The article on social enterprise will kind of go through the same process as the shelter workshop that, as you mentioned earlier on, started with 50%, right? And were reduced to 30. So it also might be 
a situation in which those quite stringent uh, requirements would be loosened up a little bit um, due to the fact of, of, of just not being applicable at all. Uh, but that also brings us to the more sort of case-based uh, part of, of, of today, because we wanted to give a couple words on a SADA case that is directly related ultimately to the discussion on social enterprise. Um, Willem, could I kindly ask you, could you briefly outline the case for us, what that case is about? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing... Um and I, I'm going to generally when I say so well, I start a bit broader than your question, <laughs> but I will answer your question. You'll get there at um, some point. I'll get there because okay. uh, we, we said I think the call to action is to our listeners is read this as a Sade case. And also perhaps, and that's why I wanted to broaden it a bit, also read the Conasse case of 6 October 2021, which related to Article 20, so the other reserved procedure. Uh, whereas this one specifically says something about um, Article 77, the, the Asade case. And what's, I think, interesting here, and I'll, I'll get down to, you know, discussing this in a bit more detail, is that we're seeing, I think, a loosening of, you know, the of what, where we can put the social. So the Court of Justice appears to be open to more social uh, procurement. Is that a, would that be a fair conclusion? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And also the increase of their relevance, because I think the fact that in a fairly recent time we have two cases right now means that there is a trickling effect from this increases of policies and mobilization, I think, if that is the society initiatives uh, or the social enterprises and so on. Um, so they gain more and more um, relevance, importance, and that's the reason that they also starting to uh, pop up in our realm of our work when it comes to law and case law. Yeah. And I think it's also so, for those of you wanting to look it up, I always hate it when people say the name of a case and then I'm like, yeah, but that's, I have no idea how to find it. We if will have it to, all it. on our <laughs> website. Please visit exactly. and read through the description. <laughs> Okay. Do you want me to make it a cliffhanger? I'm not going to mention the case. They can get angry at you. Uh, but it's uh, it's 598-19. And we're talking also about 43620, right? And I think what's interesting here is um, if we look at the Asade case um, and, and something relatively similar happens in the Conase case, is they're both Spanish. And what's interesting is the, the Spanish courts had asked before, but then in a public-public context, public-public cooperation context, um, you know, can we include private capital if it's social capital in this in, in the exemption under Article 12? And the court said, no, private capital cannot be included in this exemption. And these two cases really take a different turn here. That's sort of related um, a bit to Stathalle, right? Also the in context of public-public yes. right, case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically the court in Stathalle said private capital cannot be included in this exemption yeah. in a public-public cooperation. And the Spanish courts tried to push that boundary in Centro-Such and basically say, you know, if it's super social, this private, if these entities that own it, can't they also, and the court's very strict and says, you know, no. even though they're social, you can't. Um, what I think is interesting, though, is that it, obviously it's sparked by legislation. And it seems that um, from an outsider perspective, if I look at these two, three cases, it seems that lots of legislation is very much geared to leaving room for social services to be performed by private entities. And that's where the court also starts off, because 
what happens here in this Saudi case, the um, and, I'm, and I'm going to 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 skim through it a bit, um, is basically it's it's a reference for uh, for preliminary questions about uh, this specific um, uh, question that is addressed where. You know, there's a claim posed by Assad and basically saying, and I have to translate from Dutch because it's not available in English uh, yet. Um, you could have done the Polish, I could have done the Dutch. Relates a bit to publication languages <laughs> that we did before. Um, but the the, the uh, basically entities with a for-profit are a focus are excluded, and there's a focus on uh, external social service uh, uh, providers. Uh, non-profits um, that can uh, gain a contract directly awarded and get a bit of money for that, right? So you would think, okay, there's a, there would be a duty to tender, but, you know, there's an exemption there. And then the question is, or the, the court then, I think, takes um, makes two important conclusions, and I'm sure there's uh, more. Um, and it says something about Article uh, 77, and I think we should start there because that was the link that we had, is the court says, well, this is a, these these are criteria strict, so it kind of links up with what we were talking about before, but these criteria are not or they're not exhaustive. So this article is not exhaustive. This is not the only reserve procedure that we can can uh, uh, can have. In fact, uh, we need to read this in combination with Article seventy six of the directive. And for those of you that don't know the directive by heart. Um, the only one that I can, you know, that I know about how is Article 12 because I did my PhD on it. I'm sure that <laughs> says something about frameworks for, on your end. But 76 basically gives this very general um, uh, obligation to the member states to put in place a procedure for these, for the, for these social and other services for the light regime. Um, and basically, it states that member states are free to determine these procedural rules, uh, and you know it needs to be based on uh, the uh, on on principles. But there's a lot of room there, right? Um, and then what the court says is, well, actually, because of the uh, broad margin of appreciation that is given there in seventy six. And because, you know, we have a Protocol 26 on services of general economic interest, it's mentioned in the preamble as well how important these services are, it means that there's room for such direct awards because of the social nature of these entities. And I think that's super interesting. So quite broad uh, so I think leverage of or, or leeway of discretion is, is provided here. Yeah, Two and the question then is... And yes, states. exactly. To, to, to put, on the one hand, to put it in legislation and on the other hand, to, to interpret the rules themselves, mm. right? Because also a lot of member states, when they implemented Article 76, this procedure, they were very broad. So the Dutch wording is also criticized in the Dutch Public Procurement Act because it's deemed to be too broad um, and not giving enough guidance as to how we actually uh, do that. So the debate here is mostly, would a competitive procedure with negotiation be sufficient? For these services, mm. if we just use that procedure, would that work? Yeah. So, in other words, what is the level of transparency and equal treatment that you really need to sort of provide? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, if to if to wrap this part in, what do you think is the main learning that we're taking out from Asada? What are we taking from that case with us, kind of going forward? I think what's very difficult is it's, it's a very difficult question, mm -hmm. mostly because I think what's clear is that it's not just 77 that can have a reserved, that, that you can go beyond that, right? You can reserve contracts 
in this specific social settings for other uh, services with other criteria. That's clear. But to how far that reaches, it's unclear because what the court does, the court analyzes this Spanish context. And then these accords that are closed with these uh, private entities, uh, they need to be compliant with principles of solidarity and cost efficiency. They need to be offered to to all in principles with no cost. Uh, You can ask for an extra payment uh, but only if uh, depending if that only based on like the uh, the economic situation of the recipients of a service, um, you it needs to be uh, based on suitability. Uh, I, I could go on, right? Mm. It's a very specific, specific Spanish case. context. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I understand. So it might be actually just one of those why we why we discuss it. That it's interesting to look into it for the, some sort of perspective in it. But it's not like presser text that it kind of creates something that we will be interpreting the law going forward through that case. No, and the question then is, okay, so when we go to this other case, this Conase case, it basically there the, the 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 Spanish system had a seventy percent uh, uh, threshold instead of thirty for those specific type of employees that the sheltered workshop needs to have. Mm. There were more different criteria, and then the court says, yeah, you can also have those type of criteria for in the context of twenty. So, I think the general takeaway is there's more space, and I think time will tell how much space there actually is. So. If anyone needs to do research, maybe you and I, maybe someone else, maybe one of our students, I think it would be on the question, okay, what can we actually then concretely take away from this case? So it seems that in regards to both, um, which is quite interesting because generally we see a step away from giving any discretions in context of procurement, right? It's almost discretion is always being seen as something that is a bit problematic and risky. But it seems in both of those cases that a fair bit of discretion is being given, but also to member states to decide in context of social agenda, how specific they want to be, how rigid they want to be, how progressive they want to be, um, and, and set that in, in place. Um, let's then wrap up this uh, delicious main that we had and move on uh, briefly, Willem, because I'm mindful of time. <laughs> Briefly, let's talk about dessert. So the societal positions as an academic. Can you tell us a little bit more what is your idea behind it? Well, I always like using this section to also just like reflect on things that are being discussed within our little academic world. And that I find that, well, this topic is particularly topical in the Netherlands as well. And what I mean by that is uh, we academics, even though our students often don't know we do more than just teaching. We also research a bit. But on top of that, we also, you know, we step outside of the doors of the university. We descend from our ivory tower that doesn't exist anymore, but just to use the metaphor. And we uh, take on positions in society. And that's, I think, important for, say, the public debate. But also we take that as often also more institutionalized. So not just commenting in the media, but also uh, often... Uh, depending on like what's common in a national context, uh, we're also practitioners or we're judges at the same time, or we um, uh, are appointed by um, parties, uh, by, by private enterprises, you know, special chairs are created by private enterprises in the university. And I think all of that, even though it depends on the structure of a member state, you know, also questions how we remain independent 
as academics, because if you open the door, undesirable things might walk in as well. Mm. Yeah, it's for uh, sure the part about whether you can really kind of, or or maybe it's, I should sort of swing it the other way around. Very probable that it's not that easy that you just, you know, kind of come to university and you put one head on and then you get out of university and still in many member states, while you're an academic, you also or have your own law firm or work for a law firm. And then you take out, you know, the academic hat and put the practitioner's hat. And and in plenty of situations, you won't have any type of conflict of interest, but there might be situations that start to raise certain questions, right? Um, the same when it comes to, as you mentioned, positions being sponsored by private enterprises or particular projects even being sponsored by uh, private companies. You know, it's it's a little bit like if Shell would be suddenly sponsoring a project about, you know, climate change or clean energy or something like that, right? Is that good? Because they kind of tried to do something good and, and you go with that idea. Are you saying, well, this is sort of like, do they want to sort of, polish day image through the work that I'm being asked to do and, and, and so on. So I think that there is a lot of interesting questions here. Yeah. And I think also that, uh, um, so your example sparked also an example that we've discussed a lot is also the role of say Philip Morris in sponsoring tobacco research mm. and a lot of research in the past dismissing because it was funded by, by these entities uh, dismissing, you know, the health effects of smoking. And to build on your example, like the question I think that we continuously need to ask ourselves, are we greenwashing, yeah. you know, uh, unsustainable practices if we involve ourselves? So should we fundamentally not work with those entities? But I think also from a, I'm conflicted as an academic because I also feel the need to do it. Mm. Uh, so to, to put it in a French way, noblesse oblige, right? Nobility uh, forces you to kind of do it and not saying that we're noble, but do you get my point, right? Mm. I feel like we have such a privileged position in which we get to research and devote time to making the world better, if we say it in a bit more of an idealistic way, uh, that I also feel that we need to take on these positions to further transition society as well. And this it sounds really abstract, but mm. that's one of the reasons why I also don't want to stay just within the doors of the university. But because of that, you need to harness yourself. I think and it's also the moment that you go outside and then sort of changing the gears right now slightly of our conversation. You also realize that the law, whenever we talk about the law, the law is not really a goal in itself, Right. The, the the law in itself and, and our research is to serve certain purpose, is, is to ensure certain things. And of course, there is it's 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 possible to conduct uh research just being at the university, but I think it's much more rewarding when you have a chance to talk to if those are buyers, if those are tenderers, if there are uh you know really market players, and, and it becomes much more multidimensional. And the question, of course, here is to what extent this is a valid information that informs your research and contributes in a in a positive way to you really kind of seeing the real world for the lack of better words. And at which point this is just, you know, various stakeholders potentially also just nudging their agenda 
on your research, right? Let's say someone saying, oh, this law is really not working, this transparency, this is really problematic because, you know, my know-how and this and that. And, you know, when you then need to step away and see, well, what is the pur purpose of having transparency as a principle where are the limits and so on but i think that it is quite interesting to 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 and, and and tricky at times to you know when you are in your sort of sweet spot and which points the impact becomes slightly problematic yeah and i think key in that because i also i, I hear that and i also think like that totally resonates and i think um uh, to me key in everything that i do is transparency mm is because then at least others can, you know, check it. And I think that's what's where the debate is often shifted. Like, we need to secure our own independence. And as a check, we need to make sure that we're transparent when it comes to that. So what does that concretely mean? Is that we need to state on our university profile what side positions we have. We need to show that, um, uh, say I was recently appointed by the Dutch Ministry of Economic Affairs into a like advisory body. I put that on my profile, not because I'm proud of it or I'm happy to do it, but also because I want to make sure that everyone can see that there's no conflict of interest there. Or if they think there is, at least they know that I have that position as well and they can check me on it. Um, but, and this is what's sparking a lot of discussions also in the Netherlands is the Dutch tax office funding uh, a tax law professor uh, but not being open about it because they use a subsidiary to fund the research, right? So on paper, it didn't look like they were involved. Mm. I'm, I don't know enough about the case to say there was malintent or whatever, but I think we should avoid those type of construction at all at all cost. It should just be very clear who's funding this chair. And then I think also the next line is, these entities can show what they think is important, but ultimately it's up to the researcher to, to decide what research they do and what their research outcomes are. Yeah, because I think... And of that's course, a very tricky situation. I think that's, of course, what is the difference between really like... Maybe there's a different terms that we use, but, you know, the type of consultant work. And when you look at consultant work, what that means is that mean that you conduct a certain analysis and you deliver the output. That's a one way. And then in that way, that's much more closer, let's say, to the analysis and work that we do also as an academic. But it's a different way if sort of you are to conduct a type of analysis that is to be kind of approved or uh, needs to be nudged and somehow someone through such a task can tell you, oh, no, no, we won't be... You need to change your line of argument here because does not align with what we want to say, et cetera, et cetera, right? I think that this is when this becomes very, um, very problematic because, uh, yeah, you couldn't really write in one one thing that, you know, I don't know, just to over-exaggerate that you don't believe in climate change. And then at the same time, as an academic let's say all your line of work for last 20 years have been about, you know, climate change and, 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 and issues uh, connected with that. So, uh, so so there needs to be some sort of relationship there. But I think that why are we discussing a lot right now about this independence of it? I think that there is also point to be made in that it shouldn't be taken in a way that we want to discourage anyone from doing this. It's rather about setting a clear boundaries, being transparent, as Willem is saying, 
because I think that there is a huge amount of value in that is the societal value. We very often as an academic discuss societal value. How are you making sure that whatever you write is not just for you and your three closest colleagues, but actually it's helpful to someone and actually informs the debate, the decisions maker uh, consider that. And it's not always in the form of research articles. Sometimes it's that you need to learn how to communicate that differently. And sometimes it's about your engagement with various stakeholders that you communicate that research through. Yeah. And I think there's also a difference, and I think you're right on that, is there's a difference between informing and dictating, right? If Mm. you dictate the outcome, it's a totally different discussion than you know, us talking to economic operators on the market and their struggles with public procurement law or with uh, with public bodies struggling or or them telling us to say that the rules need to be changed in a certain way to better their position, right? I think that's, that's a very difficult uh, uh, debate, but I'd, maybe we can also, you know, I'd love to hear more about this also from our listeners. If you've got things to say about it, um, then, then maybe we can get you know, the debate going based on this question is, um, and I think there's there's two that I have maybe that I would like to pose, is are there certain positions that you definitely can't have? So in the Netherlands is often debated, can you be an academic and a judge? Mm. Is that allowed? Because you put you have a certain opinion that you put down on paper and then you have to objectively rule on a certain case yourself later on. So that's, I think, one question. Is that is that possible? I mean, it happens, and I don't have necessarily a strong opinion about it. And 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 two is what's required from from us academics to, you know, ensure that we keep our independence. Should we be very strict about it and not move outside our doors, or is there more to say than uh, than just that? And do we need to be transparent when we uh, when we do it? So we leave it. So we leave it at that with those two questions. Undoubtedly, I think that they are very good, and 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 like always, we hope to engage further with anyone who had a chance to listen to this episode through the comment section of our uh, LinkedIn profile when we'll be launching this podcast. But in general, we uh, we want to kind of call upon and engage with us. So it's not a one-way street in which you just listen to us. We would very much want to hear in any way possible your suggestions. And please have in mind that we always read all of them um, and we're very grateful for uh, for that expression of, of your yours uh, attention to the work that we're doing. So thank you for that also. I, I have nothing more to add uh, to that. Uh, this was Bistek, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bistek, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.